Crest in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Good afternoon. Thanks for joining me on this Tuesday. Let me lead off by saying congratulations uh, to another longtime member of the EWTN radio family. I want to say thanks and congratulations to Trinity Catholic Radio in Carroll, Iowa. They're celebrating their 18th year with EWTN. So congratulations there to Kelly Foley and the great team at KYMJ 103.1 FM in Carroll, Iowa. From your friends at EWTN. Let me tell you where we're going on today's program. We are taking a look at uh, a a topic that was suggested by a New York Times column who suggested that Dorothy Day's cause for sainthood may be delayed because church leaders are uncomfortable with her politics. Um, uh, This this gets frustrating because the, the world doesn't get that Catholic social teaching is not right or left. It's Catholic. It's not conservative or liberal. It's Catholic. And I want to make that point again because I think it's important that we we all have our political choices to make as citizens, of course. But when it comes to Catholic social teaching, uh, it doesn't fall into those preordained categories of uh, political history. Uh, along the same lines, uh, Dr. Robert Waples with us, uh, putting the just in social justice. Social justice, one of those waxy words that you can play around with, uh, but it's a word that is a phrase that's commonly used. Let's get to understand it better and uh, let Dr. Waples give us some idea of what justice is before we begin to talk about social justice. We also go back to a conversation I held with Monsignor Hilary Franco, who, as a young priest, was an assistant, full-time assistant, by the way, to Bishop Fulton Sheen. I was actually with him during the Second Vatican Council. Uh, his memories are worth hearing. And then we'll talk to George Weigel about St. Pope John XXIII's original intention for Vatican II. Uh, George has written an outstanding book called Sanctify the World, The Vital Legacy of Vatican II. We'll focus in on St. John XXIII's original intention. But first, the headlines. Thanks, Al. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Tuesday, October 24th. It's the Feast of St. Anthony Mary Claret. Today's news brought to you by the Ave Maria Family of Funds at AveMariaFunds.com. In the past month, at least 33 Americans have died and 10 are unaccounted for in the war between Israel and Hamas. That's what National Security Council spokesman John Kirby told reporters. It would be imprudent and irresponsible if we didn't have folks thinking through a broad range of contingencies and possibilities. And, um, and, uh, and certainly evacuations are, are one of those things. Kirby added the administration is deeply concerned about possible attacks on American troops stationed in the Middle East. Speaking on a potential ceasefire in the conflict, Kirby said a ceasefire at this time would only benefit Hamas as the militant group is holding more than 200 hostages captive. 
A federal judge is blocking the state of Colorado from enforcing a law that bans health clinics from using a procedure meant to reverse medically induced abortions. Maureen West with the Boulder Pregnancy Resource Center says it can save a pregnancy if a woman who has taken the first dose of abortion medication suddenly changes her mind. Certainly there's going to be a number of women who decide, oh, you know what, that's not what I want to do. I don't want to have an abortion. I want to see if I can, you know, carry through with this pregnancy. A U.S. District Court judge announcing the ruling saying that there are religious freedom issues surrounding the law that the state has yet to address. The decision only applies to that clinic. Minnesota Congressman Tom Elmer is the Republican nominee for speaker, but he's got a long way to go to convince his colleagues to give him the necessary votes on the House floor. He's answering whatever questions somebody has, and I think some of the questions people have, they haven't given Tom the opportunity yet to even ask him that and have him answer that. Kevin McCarthy telling reporters the party is in a bad place as the chamber has been without a leader for three weeks. From your AviMariaRadio.net news desk, I'm Steve Clark. Times ran a column, uh, was Dorothy Day too left-wing to be a Catholic saint? And under the headline, you've got this kicker, which says, the Archdiocese of New York has asked the Vatican to consider the social activists for sainthood, but church leaders are not entirely comfortable with her politics. Um, and first of all, the evidence for such a statement is woefully lacking. Uh, Cardinal Dolan, who has a reputation of being theologically, fully theologically orthodox, often considered politically lean, that, quote, he leans politically conservative. He didn't seem uncomfortable. Uh, he made it clear that he's an admirer of Dorothy Day. Her politics don't seem to bother him. He, he says she's one of our greats, and he's asking Pope Francis to declare her venerable. Um he didn't spend a lot of time on her political life, but he did refer to her being on assignment by a Catholic magazine to report on a hunger march in 1932 in D.C. After observing the march, Day prayed in the Basilica of the Immaculate Conception, and there she took another step towards integrating her politics and her emerging faith. So she's, her life is a fascinating story, and it's well told in her memoir, uh, The Long Loneliness, so, where's the evidence that church officials are uncomfortable with their politics? But then the second problem is, sanctity is not an outgrowth of a person's political opinions. Sainthood is about the demonstration of heroic virtue. Uh, a person is canonized because that person has demonstrated heroic virtue such that the church believes this person should be an exemplar for the rest of us. And that has virtually nothing to do with a person's politics. You know, now, not all political views are equally good, but whatever your political view, you can be a saint. Because being a saint doesn't mean that you have all your intellectual opinions perfectly formed. It means you have been purged of disordered self-love, and you have put on Christ. The author of this piece doesn't seem to be aware of this. And so he abuses his readers by trying to push the church into the common conservative-liberal divide. The late Cardinal George 
used to say, the church is not conservative or liberal. The church is Catholic. And uh, this has to be kept in mind, and it's hard. Uh, It is hard to always keep this in mind. And I'll tell you what has made it more difficult than anything else. Abortion. The abortion issue has pushed many, many Catholics into the Republican Party. Uh, Because of the Democrats' position on abortion, uh, people who believe that abortion is the morally defining issue of this generation don't have too many political options. So they align themselves with Republicans. They align themselves with other political conservatives. But to be pro-life is not necessarily to be politically conservative. People used to know this back in the 1970s and even into the 1980s. But as the Democrat Party began to expunge pro-life people from their upper levels and would not give them any support, it just became clear that if you're going to express political opinions as a pro-lifer, you're probably going to express those opinions with some um, solidarity with those who are, quote, conservative. Um, there's a statement in this column from uh, the Reverend Anthony Andreasi, who's principal of Regis High School in Manhattan. He says, one thing about Dorothy Day that I love is that she makes everyone uncomfortable. The Catholic Church, like everything else, is so divided between liberals and conservatives, she's one of those people who both the left and the right find so much richness in. And that's true. Uh, got a letter, an email from a listener who wanted to address this problem of left and right, conservative and liberal. And I'm going to try to do something with this, because I, I do think this is important. It's, it is easy to always fall into this labeling. I don't think it can be avoided, but it can be done consciously, deliberately, intentionally, and with accuracy. Or it can just become almost slang, uh, or worse, swear words that you <laughs> curse people with. Uh, she writes, There are two terms used excessively on Ave Maria Radio, and certainly throughout the mainstream media, which I believe are not only causing division in our country, but also segregating Catholics and Christians in a deceptive and unhealthy manner. The two words are right and left. Can all of America and Christianity be divided in such broad-based terminology? I think not. What we are, what we are really doing as Catholics when we use this terminology is claiming we have a limited vocabulary. Lazy individuals who cannot intellectually be more definitive with our words. And we're perpetuating an evil ideology that Catholic Christians can be thrown into a box simply defined as right. Uh, She goes on. Using these terms not only divide people rather than unite them, but also degrades human beings and creates this idea that we are nothing more than right or left. Human beings are made in the image and likeness of God. Is God right? Is God left? What a joke. This terminology is inferior vocabulary. Really, these terms are from the pit of hell, from Satan, who would love to strip us of our multifaceted identities and create a false sense of reality. Okay. Um, I I get this. Uh, This reliance on binary distinction, right? Left and right is 
an uncomfortable and unfortunate feature of our popular conversation. It's probably unavoidable. The American people, I would entirely agree, the American people can't be so easily pigeonholed left or right, conservative or liberal. But political actors generally do take on conservative um, or liberal coloration. If you notice in my conversation on these matters, I usually have left, followed by progressive, followed by liberal, moderate, conservative, and then far right. Those are the labels I use. Um, But when you shake it all down, you can still divide that into liberal and conservative, or left and right, or free marketers and government planners. Let's face it, even at the end of time, we have the sheep and the goats. Binary distinctions can't be avoided. It's the way the human mind works. But we can be lazy about it, which is a good point that she makes. You know, for years I tried to avoid using those labels. But what happens is you end up finding other verbal generalizations about the same groups, right, and people. So, as I said, Cardinal George, uh, in fact, he and I talked about this uh, before his death uh, when we were in Chicago together. Uh, He liked to say Catholics are not conservative or liberal, they are Catholic. And ultimately, that is true. But penultimately, Catholics do align themselves with others who share certain assumptions about the social order, certain assumptions about America, certain assumptions about the role of the state. And I think the best we can do is try to be accurate in our language and not throw those terms around in a way that is lazy or somehow excuses us from being accurate. Um, We don't want to undermine our own credibility by uh, using these labels inaccurately or hiding behind them in some way. And... I think of Cardinal uh, John O'Connor in this regard. Uh, He was often thought to be, quote, conservative. And he was clearly theologically orthodox, and he was truly a pro-life champion. But he was the older style pro-life Democrat. In fact, he and New York Mayor Ed Koch wrote a book together. Uh, So was was Cardinal O'Connor conservative or liberal? No, he was Catholic. And if you take a look at the U.S. bishops and their statements, it is impossible to identify them as conservative or liberal. You know, they emphasize the uh, preferential option for the poor. They are generally, while they're not pacifists, they are almost always against war. They also are for international organizations like the United Nations, the International Criminal Court. Those tend to be, quote, liberal concerns. They're also big on the environment. But they're also strongly pro-life. They oppose physician-assisted suicide. Um, You know, so they are also, quote, conservative. They have the principle of subsidiarity, which is considered a conservative principle. So this does, I I understand my correspondent's concerns. Um, 
You know, Dorothy Day, was she conservative or liberal? Doesn't work, does it? Oscar Romero, St. Oscar Romero, conservative or liberal? St. John Paul II, conservative or liberal? St. Thomas Aquinas, conservative or liberal? We have a different agenda, even when it comes to the social order. But our primary agenda is sainthood. I mean, St. Paul writes that the aim of our instruction is love from a pure heart, a good conscience. I love this. The aim of our instruction is love from a pure heart. In other words, all of his teaching, and there's a lot of it, right, in in all the Pauline letters and what he says in the Acts of the Apostles, all of his instruction, he says, is to produce saints, is to produce people who love from a pure heart. Uh, when he writes 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you know, the great uh, love poem uh, that we, we all know so much. Love is patient, love is kind, it is not jealous, it is not pompous, it's not inflated, it's not rude, it doesn't seek its own interests, it's not quick-tempered. You've heard this passage so often. Is that conservative or liberal? Are saints conservative or liberal? No, they, they are not. And so, ultimately, this whole conservative-liberal thing falls apart. But penultimately, in having to deal with our place in our time, I don't think we can get away. Some people line up with the conservative agenda. Some people have a liberal or progressive or even left-wing agenda. But the American people generally can't be divided up that way. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popchuk. Household chores aren't just tasks that need to be done. They're a way for family members to learn to take care of each other. Families who create daily working together rituals don't see tasks like washing dishes or cleaning up the family room or folding laundry simply as things to do. By doing them together, these tasks become a way for family members to say, I love you, and you can count on me to show up, not just for the fun stuff, but all the other stuff too. Family working together rituals help families connect around caring for each other and their home. And that's one reason family rituals for working together are such an important part of Catholic family life. To discover more ways your family can celebrate the liturgy of domestic church life, check out the newest editions of Parenting with Grace and visit CatholicCounselors.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me Family Man. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit CatholicCounselors.com. What is the life of our heart? The Catholic Catechism answers prayer is the life of the new heart. It ought to be the source of our animation at every moment, but we tend to forget the one who is our all. The fathers of the spiritual life in the Deuteronomic and prophetic tradition say that prayer is a remembrance of God often awakened by the memory of the heart. We are to remember God more often, says the Catechism, than we draw breath. We cannot, however, pray at all times if we have not learned to pray at specific times. The tradition of the Church proposes morning and evening prayer, grace before and after meals, the liturgy of the hours, Sundays centered on the Eucharist, the cycle of the liturgical year with its great feasts as the basic rhythms of the Christian's life of prayer. 
There are three major expressions of prayer, vocal, meditative, and contemplative. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Finding good health care, encouragement for healthier living, or solid spiritual direction can be frustrating. That's why the Catholic healthcare alternative, CMF Curo, is offering a health-sharing option. Curo's Christ-centered wellness services include Catholic wellness coaching, spiritual direction, and a Catholic community supporting your health and wellness needs. Visit cmfcuro.com to learn more. That's cmfcuro.com, where you can experience Christ's healing love in your health and wellness. We need your help. Hello, I'm Marianne Koharski, Director of Pro-Life Across America. In my 30-plus years, I've never seen such a concerted attempt to silence our efforts and at a time when it's most needed. There's a powerful effort to prevent and block our pro-life messages. Our billboards, social media, and digital ads are all impacted. Unplanned pregnancies still happen. Our ads feature a hotline number connecting callers with more than 3,000 pregnancy support centers across America, offering alternatives to abortion, free ultrasound, and pregnancy help. Babies' lives are being saved. The need still exists. It really does. And Pro-Life Across America needs your help. To donate, please find us at ProLifeAcrossAmerica.org. Did you know I could suck my thumb before I was born? Yep, we all started small. Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic law school in the United States. Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law, unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit AveMariaLaw.edu. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Social justice is one of those phrases that is seems to be pretty elastic. Uh, you find definition, redefinitions, qualifications of it uh, over and over again. Friedrich Hayek, the famed social philosopher and economist, considered it incoherent. In fact, it was a mirage. Um, you got the uh, at least one passage in the um, compendium of the social doctrine of the church uses social justum, justice as a synonym for the common good. Um, you've got uh, people like uh, Michael Novak uh, who defined uh, social justice uh, as the capacity to organize with others to accomplish ends that benefit the whole community. Uh, it, it's, it's something that uh, is popular, uh, it's a, one of those phrases you want to try to get to understand, especially as a Catholic, since uh, it's an area of concern. Uh, my guest, uh, Dr. Robert Waples, uh, has been with us before dealing on matters of economics. He's co-editor and managing editor of the Independent Review and a professor of economics at Wake Forest University. He is uh, the co-editor of this book, Is Social Justice Just? 
And he's also, as we've talked before, editor of Pope Francis and the Caring Society. Uh, He also hosts the Modern Economic Issues Lecture Series at the Greek Courses. Robert, good to have you back here. Thank you. Thank you for having me on again. Well, this is a helpful book. I'm really glad to see it. And I guess let's talk a little bit about, is there any consensus uh, within the church or within um, among economists and social philosophers of what is social justice? I mean, do we have clear definitions? I think that there's just such a wide range of definitions that it's really hard for people to even have a conversation about it these days. You know, on one side, you've got people who see the the term social justice as like a sincere attempt to right wrongs, you know, to pull down the oppressors, to, to help the underdog. Right. And then often when you look what they then say we need to do, you're like, how is that actually helping the underdog? And why do you see oppressors everywhere? So I think a lot of people are, are very confused by it. The term has quite a bit of, of baggage. And some of the authors in our book you know, say that it, it's really kind of used these days as a, a, a cudgel, right? Yeah. People pretending to the high ground. And what they really want to do is a little rent-seeking. They want to line their own pockets. Uh, Thomas Sowell, the economist, uh, said envy was once considered to be one of the seven deadly sins before it became one of the most admired virtues under its new name, social justice. (laughs) (laughs) There's a range of opinions. But what we're trying to do in the book, I think, is maybe restart the conversation and and try to get it on a good track. Because, I mean, there's some useful content to the term, to the ideas of social justice. I think you need to go back to, like, what is justice, right? and right. then build from there. And so the authors in the book generally go back to the old definition from, you know, Aquinas and, and people like that, that justice is the constant and perpetual will to render to each what is due to him. Mm-hmm. So what happens when we put the word social yes. in front? Move it from I, I the individual. We need to yeah. think about, yeah, we got to think about the rules of the game, you yeah. know? Yeah. Not who won and who lost. Actually, in our society, it's like who won and who won more. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> not that. But, you know, were the rules right? Were the rules moral? Were the rules fair? That That kind of thing, rather than... Seeing at the end of the day, well, this guy who's on my team didn't do well enough, so this must be rigged. No, uh, not like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because in some cases, you listen to people talk, it, it, social justice becomes uh, what you invoke when you come across something you disapprove. And mm-hmm. that the, 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 the social justice becomes the remedy, and then the remedy uh, almost always has some uh, instrument of, uh, of uh, enforcement. So it's to, yeah it's, coercion, you know, yeah. to get in the government. And once you use the word justice, if there's something truly unjust, something's got to be done about it. Right. And often that implies that you know the government's got to come come in. And we think that you can rehabilitate the term if you go back to those legitimate principles we were talking about. They, they recognize each person as unique and unrepeatable, worthy of dignity endowed with the ability to direct their own lives without harming other people, and noble enough 
to care deeply about the well-being of others. It's a bottom-up thing the way we see it. And I think it's grounded in, you can see from what, what I just mentioned there, noble enough to care about, you know. Uh, it's, it's grounded in, at least the way I see it, a very religious, a very Christian yeah. uh, point of view. Yeah. I, when you talk about each person as unique and unrepeatable and worthy of dignity, endowed with the ability and right to direct his or her own life without, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. without harming others, you really are looking at a, a, a very Christian understanding of the human person. Um, so, in that case, then, social justice becomes the pursuit of what, of the social circumstance, a social environment by which people then can cooperate with others to mm-hmm. uh, find human flourishing as they understand it. Yeah, I, th- I think that word cooperation is the key. And so uh, we kind of give a sober warning that even honest attempts to involve the state and coerced redistribution can rapidly decay into simple rent-seeking, lining your own pocket. But also that there's a lot of unjust things out there that we would, we would need to stamp out if we were to have a more just, a more socially just world. Yeah. You know, government policies that involve cronyism and, right. and bailouts and, and special privileges. No, those, those things got to go. Yeah. So it's definitely not a status quo kind of thing. Uh, but let's start with good first principles and then let the thing emerge from the bottom up. And one of, you know, the first principles that the authors are mainly economists is that people interacting freely with each other in a market, it usually works out pretty well if you've, you've got a you know, good set of laws that's being impartially enforced by the courts. And in fact, just look around the world today, we're seeing more and more countries putting in place economic systems like that, and we're seeing greater and greater economic prosperity. Yes. I, I published a little paper last year in which I looked at, like, where do the poorest Americans fit in the overall income distribution. Okay, so the poorest 5% of Americans, they're at the 5th percentile in the United States, mm-hmm. but they're at the 69th percentile in the world. Wow. And if you looked at all the human beings believed to have ever lived, economic historian estimates are going way, way, way back, the poorest 5% of Americans today would be at the 95th percentile among all human beings who've ever lived. Wow. So we have built a system that can just erase absolute poverty and, yeah. and give us the kind of economic flourishing that I think you know, we're, we're capable of doing and we were designed to, to achieve. I mean, it seems to me that that's a, a fact of economic history that doesn't get much attention when I hear people talking ever, about like, social justice. Do you ever, like, your knees and just, like, I am so grateful for being here <laughs> right. now and not living way back yeah. then? Yeah, I do, by the way. Yes. And, oh, that good. You know, <laughs> we should. Gosh. Yeah. I mean, I, it, it's, we should learn from that, though, it seems to me. That, that should tell us something about what makes for human flourishing. And uh, many of those who are champions of social justice, as they define it, seem to think that um, free markets uh, are not uh, are not a help in uh, lifting people out of poverty. Mm-hmm. I think they got a pretty good track record. The other authors in the book uh, were all on the same page there. And of course, free markets are not perfect. There are things that you know they leave out. 
the Pope Francis and the Caring Society book that you mentioned earlier. Yeah. I kind of set up a, like a dialogue between a market-oriented economist and Pope Francis and what he was saying. And, you know, there's obviously some things where you just leave the market. The market is us. Leave us to our own devices, and things don't work out so well, right. like, you know, pollution and overfishing the seas. We talked about That's that right. a couple of years ago on your show, I remember. Yep. So there's some cases where, you know, we could definitely step in and, you know, we need to act collect- collectively. We need to get the government involved to help solve these problems. But, you know, those, I think, are more the ex- the exception rather than the rule. Yeah, yeah. Uh, speaking of Pope Francis, uh, one of your uh, contributors mentions that Pope Francis speaks of the preferential option for the poor rather than mm-hmm. social justice. Uh, mm-hmm. Why is that? Um, I I don't presume to speak for all the authors in the book, but, uh, you know, the, the basic idea is that we are all, what, part of one human family, and mm-hmm. so we do have an obligation to take care of those, especially who cannot take care of themselves so well. And I think that's the essence of, you know, the preferential option for the poor, that, you know, it, it's our duty in many ways. Yeah. Uh, many, one of the best ways to help the poor, though, of course, is to unleash the forces of the market economy, which have given us that great prosperity that I was just talking about. So too often that's overlooked, I think. Yeah. I, I mean, I know in one passage here, Pope Francis is quoted as uh, talk, making a very uh, common point, which is that uh, the best thing you can do for somebody in poverty is find him a job, get, yeah. allow him to work, uh, yeah. allow him to accumulate property. Um, you know, in the last chapter of the book I, I wrote, it's about anti-racism and social justice, you know, and I'm kind of in, in dialogue in that chapter with uh, Ibram Kendi, the yeah. author of How to Be an Anti-Racist, right, right. and I, I give like a list of policies that one might implement to get to the end that he has in mind, which I think is also the end that I and most people would have in mind. You know, we, I, I open my introduction and I open this chapter by saying that we all hunger to live in a just world right. and work constantly in ways great and small to promote justice. So how would you do that? He sees capitalism and racism as conjoined twins. And that, I just do not see how one can get that reading the history. Yeah. You know, the opposite of capitalism is socialism. And socialism is the one that leads to abysmal out. You know outcomes where power is just concentrated in a few hands, and prosperity is destroyed. So if we do all want to be on a level playing field, on an equal footing, as Candy says, you know you don't want to be on an equal footing down at the bottom of a pit. In socialism, it'd be better to be on a relatively equal footing near the top of a mountain. Uh, you know, with capitalism. So I've got some suggestions there, and one of them is what you just talked about, right? And that the Pope talked about. Jobs, right? Yeah. Exclusionary licensing that make it so difficult for people to get jobs. That's one of those things that I would. Robert Holter, got to take a break. Yep. We'll come right back. The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and his gospel by word and the testimony of life in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit StreetEvangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. 
Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. You and your spouse are invited to cruise with Royal Caribbean this January, along with Father Michael Schmidt, Archbishop Nauman, Al, Teresa, Dr. Ray, and many others. Get away with your spouse on a fun, relaxing, and rejuvenating cruise with inspiring speakers, daily mass, and endless memorable experiences. Father Michael Schmidt's comments, you'll encounter an amazing community of couples and speakers, and most importantly, you'll encounter Christ. More details at AveMariaRadio.net. Just click the travel link. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org. Connection with Teresa Tomio. We listen to all kinds of things, as the Pope says. The radio, the TV, we listen to our phones, all kinds of other messages. But are we silencing ourselves enough that we may listen for God? The other thing we need to do is continue to educate ourselves on the faith. Are we listening to Catholic programming on a regular basis? Are we attending really good, healthy, faith-filled conferences to learn more from those who may be scripture scholars or apologists or maybe just a good talk from a spiritual leader or maybe watching a good video of a wonderful priest such as a Father John Ricardo or a Bishop Barron or someone else? So continue to, as Father John Harden used to say, educate, educate, educate yourself in the Catholic faith. Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern, on EWTN Radio. 60 on 10 with Monsignor Charles Pope. The Fifth Commandment, you shall not kill. At the heart of this commandment is an absolute insistence on the sacredness of human life. We read in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, Before I ever formed you in the womb, I knew you, says the Lord. So every human life is sacred because it's caught up in the mind and the heart and the will and the love of God. And no matter how we're conceived or any circumstances, God has always known and loved every human person. And for this reason, we are to hold sacred every human life. We are, therefore, to never murder, never kill, never seek vengeance. Of course, we have issues of abortion and euthanasia today, and we have so many ways where we in some way disrespect the lives of other human persons, and even our own life. We have to learn to respect it as a great gift from God. The Fifth Commandment, you shall not kill. For more about the Ten Commandments, visit EWTNRC.com. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Robert Waples. He is uh, co-editor uh, of the book, Is Social Justice Just? And it's got uh, outstanding contributions. 
very worthwhile. We're going to have it available for you, of course, in the online bookstore, so it'll be there for you to follow up with. Um, you were, We closed last segment. You were talking about mm-hmm. the, the chapter in which you uh, enter into a dialogue with uh, the, the, the father of uh, how to be an anti-racist, Ibrahim uh, Kendi. And with somebody like Kendi, I mean, his his absolute is the the fact of racism. So he he sees nothing except through that lens. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just wondering, how do you talk with somebody like that? Yeah, difficult. I doubt if I'll ever have the chance to talk to him one on one or anything. Yeah. But uh, you know, one of the points I make in that chapter is. You know, we want to do some reforms that will help everyone be on an, an equal footing. Let's address the fact of, that black lives matter. And I think they do. Sure. And 63% of black lives end in abortion. Yeah. That's yeah. Some, yeah, that is something that you would definitely want to address if you want to have an anti-racist yeah. you know, world. So we've got, I got a number of suggestions in that chapter, which would do uh, kind of, I think almost everybody would agree, if you kind of step back and think about putting power into those, in the hands of those people who are designed to run their own lives, you know, educational reform to give parents more say, yeah, maybe vouchers. Uh, reforming our health care system to eliminate barriers so that it's easier, so we can increase the supply and it's not so expensive. Uh, getting rid of occupational licensing, so you know it's it's hard for people to even get into a job that they're perfectly qualified for because mm-hmm. they haven't done whatever box needs to be checked off. Ending exclusionary zoning, you know, back in the day when there was a center of opportunity in the country, Detroit, Motor City, yep. you know, everybody yeah. would move there. Yeah. Nowadays, it's so expensive to move to. Whatever, the Bay Area, New York, wherever, because it's so difficult to build housing there. And so, boy, is that one thing that has really made it difficult for people to prosper. Yeah. Cheap energy is something I point out as well. You know, you wouldn't think about that, but fracking, what a boom that has been in bringing down, especially natural gas prices, right. used for right. housing, you know, heating people's homes in the winter. And you know how many people die of cold in the winter still in the, this day in this country? Yeah. You know, and there's an estimate, you know, the sort of course, I quote, like, how many lives have been saved by the cheap energy from yeah. fracking? Yeah. So, you know, of course, ending cronyism and bailouts. And a topic that when I talk on many shows, conservatives aren't always on the same page with these days, and that's free trade. Most economists think that free trade is a very good idea. And the studies show that it actually helps the people at the bottom part of the, of the income distribution far more. Uh, one famous study uh, in one of the top economics journals <clears throat> says that moving to free trade in, in, in the United States uh, has increased the effective purchasing power, income levels, of people at the 90th percentile, rich people, by about 4%. But if you're at the 10th percentile, it's increased your purchasing power by about 70%. Wow. Well, yeah, that's amazing. You know, those those are the trade that, that's, goods. That's uh, rich, rich people buy services. So, you know? so, so, what I mean, what's funny about this is yeah. that so-called economic nationalism, which mm. is uh, talking not about free trade, uh, is always it's always uh, said that this is protecting American workers. Uh, mm-hmm. But what it what you're saying is that uh, at the other end, at the 
of the worker mm-hmm. as consumer, uh, it actually it gains that might be had by mm-hmm. pre- preserving uh, occupation uh, is lost when it comes to consumerism. Yeah, yeah, I, and that's you know that's tied in with one of the other things I said you know about the occupational licensing. We need to free up our labor market so it's easier for people to move from one place to another, from one occupation to another. It's the combination of those two things. I think you know the increased in uh, the increased imports that we had in the past, and also it's just hard for people to move to new jobs that that left some people kind of high and dry. Mm-hmm. And we we certainly you know don't want to, to have a lot of losers in this process. Yeah. And there are, are policies we have in place in the country to help people transition to new jobs, but it's not really that kind of policy that will do it. It's getting rid of other policies that make it difficult for people to get new jobs. Uh, many, many social policies have people who defend them because, in fact, they've built uh, uh, their institutions around them. So you've got you got uh, cap, we talk about crony capitalism, but you've mm-hmm. also got people in the civil rights establishment in other areas of activism um, who really benefit tremendously by cooperation with governments and other large organizations that offer grant writing, and mm-hmm. they they're not necessarily. I mean, they sounds terrible, but in some ways. They, their income, their revenue, their livelihood depends on the problem that they're supposed to be solving, mm-hmm. that problem mm-hmm. not being solved. I mean, what happens mm-hmm. if all of a sudden uh, all the issues of racial justice are settled in America? What becomes of these, this network, vast network of interlocking civil rights organizations? What do they do now? And so there's a whole, large portion of professional and semi-professional people who are benefiting uh, mm-hmm. in organizations allegedly s- created mm-hmm. to solve social problems, but in fact, if those social problems are eventually solved, those organizations disappear. So, mm-hmm. hey, what do you what do you say to groups like that? I know that there's a, a lot of. It turns out there's a lot of jobs like that out in all parts of the economy, a- absolutely. where you have an incentive to not make the problem go away. Right, right. Economists have a general term for this. It's called the principal agent problem. The principal wants a job to be done and so selects an agent to do it, but the agent doesn't always have the best interest of the principal at heart. Right. And my, my, you know, what, what's in it for me here? Yeah. And how can I keep this kind of thing going? Yeah, we definitely have to, we've we got to be very vigilant about that. Yeah. You know, in almost every setting from the, the corporation to the, the classroom to the church to everywhere, we got to make sure that people aren't just making problems so that they can be paid to, to pretend to solve them. Yeah. When when you look at the the uh, church documents dealing with the questions of social doctrine, uh, like the compendium, uh, the social doctrine of the church, um, is there a coherent understanding of social justice? in that body of material? I, I, I am not widely read enough to answer okay. that question Fair for enough. you. So, yeah, yeah. unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. That's why I asked. I want to know. <laughs> so, if you can't answer <laughs> it, that's fine. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I wish. I mean, this is a failing on my part, let's admit it, that I should be spending much more of my time looking at things like that instead yeah. of reading the economic stuff that I'm reading. <laughs> well, that's an area of expertise for you. We need you. We need you there doing it. Um, 
do you see is is there a political expression in america right now that you think embodies what your the contributors for your book here that they would like to see i mean any political leaders anybody championing yeah. the vision I, I think the problem is that it's the depoliticization of things that we need, right? Yeah. We try to politicize everything. Right. You know, we've seen it happen with our schools recently, and well, and once one side politicizes it, the other's got to get involved, and you know, who goes first? But yeah, just getting the politics out of everything, I think, is the best way to. If that could be our default setting, you know, separation of blank and state, you know, we always think church and state, whatever, there should be separation of a lot of other things in state out there. Um, I I think that they would just allow people to come together voluntarily to work out their problems and not enforce their will on other people, because that's so much about what, you know, politics actually boils down to. It does. I mean, I I don't think people take seriously enough the idea that when when laws are passed, those laws have behind them coercive instruments. I mean, you, you, when you pass a law, when something you're saying that there are those who will not voluntarily adhere to those laws, uh, so you need to somehow punish people. So you, most of us would rather have a society in which uh, people were encouraged to do uh, what is right rather than have to wait to be punished uh, mm-hmm. to achieve that. And I don't know, I mean, it's a fairly libertarian approach to things, but given how many people benefit from um, the money that's mm-hmm. distributed by the One of the chapters in the government. book has this concept of justice creep. Yeah. You know, like yeah. mission creep. You know, you know, we needed to address this problem and then, then every other problem. <clears throat> and where does it end? And, and it doesn't seem to end. It just it seems to feed on itself is the problem. So, and, and, yeah. that, and that's one of the things that people object to with the idea of social justice, that it seems to require principles of enforcement. That these, mm-hmm. you know, and so you end up relying on the, 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 the heavy uh, stick. I get the, the sense sometimes that part of the problem is that people don't Fewer and fewer people believe in eternity and in eternal rewards and eternal punishments. Yeah. And it used to be back in the old days, you know, it was like somebody was a jerk and they did get away with something that they shouldn't have. And you were like, yeah, but they're going to pay a price for that. Right. And right. nowadays, well, they're, n- they're never going to pay a price. We've got to go after them right now yeah. on the smallest of, of pretexts and stuff. So, yeah. 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 Very true. Um your, from your observation, uh, do you see Catholics becoming more and more uh, uh, articulate on these questions of social justice? Well, some of the authors in the book are uh, obviously Catholic in their background, and, and I think they have articulated a lot of their points quite well. I, you know, I can't really speak for you know too too broad of a set of people, uh, but I think we are making some progress, and, and I certainly hope that this book pushes us toward doing that, and we can have more conversations just like this, and I know yeah. you've got thousands, millions of listeners, I don't know how many listeners you have, but they, they, we're having actually a three-way conversation right now, That's right. because the, the person listening in their car or whatever is, is thinking, like, what about this and what about that, and they're turning these ideas over in their mind, rightly so, and this is what we all need to do, and then kind of live out what 
you know, what we come to is the, you know, what is a truly just situation. Amen. Robert, thanks. Great talking with you again. And um, we'll uh, get together in the future. Uh, Do you have any other literary projects that you're involved in? Uh, well, I'm I'm writing a few chapters for a book on great minds of the market. And so I've been reading some of the greats oh. like Mansur Olson and Julian Simon yeah. and Gary Becker. I don't know if you know any of these names, but they're getting my, my mind humming on these. I, I know their names. The I don't know what they thought, show. though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll look forward to that. All right. Okay, very good. Thanks, Robert. Is, Thank you so much for having me on. Is social justice just? Uh, Dr. Robert Waples, uh, co-editor, along with Michael Munger and Christopher Coyne, will have it available on the online bookstore there. And again, this question of social justice, the question of the common good, is something I do think, uh, as disciples of Christ, we need to talk about more because the world is always thinking the only way that you can achieve some of these goods is through the coercive power of government. And I think that's one of the misleading facts of the word social justice. It implies that you have to have some cudgel that's going to force people to do things, right? Come down and whack them. But it's much more virtuous if people volunteer to do the good. The Wisdom of Mother Angelica. I told him about the woman who came to me and said her two children hadn't spoken to each other for two years. Their grandma died and she was very wealthy. She left half to each one. She said they're arguing over a commode. She said inlaid. Can you imagine being in hell? And somebody saying to you, what are you here for? EWTN. Live Truth. Live Catholic. With so much going on in the world, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. What do you need to know today? Stay tuned to Cresta in the Afternoon and Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio as we bring you the day's top stories and conversations from an authentic Catholic perspective. Can your messy house lead to anxiety? I'm Chuck Gatica, and this is Journey Strong. St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians states that God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. If you walk in the door at home and you are greeted by clutter, peace may be hard to find. A messy house can lead to cognitive overload. While we're trying to concentrate on one thing, clutter can distract. According to research, women may be more affected by this type of anxiety. Societal roles and expectations can enhance the stress. To be fair, other underlying mental health disorders can lead to more clutter, depression, hoarding, and OCD, just to name a few. However, clutter can sometimes lead to more creativity. Bottom line, don't let a messy house define you as a good or bad person. Take baby steps to negotiate with those responsible for messes to make change or hire a cleaning person. Check out the Journey Strong tab for more on clutter at the homepage of AveMariaRadio.net. Never miss an episode of Cresta in the Afternoon. Subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also listen on demand at AveMariaRadio.net and on the Ave Maria Radio app. Thanks for being with me this hour. We've got more coming up in the next hour. Uh, George Weigel with us about uh, Pope St. John the Twenty-Third's original intention for the Second Vatican Council. It's, it's so important 
it's so important in this day to understand the Second Vatican Council, its documents, the intention of John the Twenty Third in calling the council, and uh, there's a lot of turmoil in the Catholic Church, certainly in America, but Europe. Uh, and apparently around the world, and a lot of it has to come back to is, what is Christ's will for his church? Well, one of the ways we know what Christ's will is for his church is to listen carefully to the teaching authority that Jesus established uh, when he commissioned St. Peter as the rock, right, in Matthew chapter 16. So we're going to take some time next hour with George Weil to look over John the Twenty-Third's original intention. Vatican II, by the way, is recognized by historians as perhaps the most significant, quote, religious event of the 20th century. So this was no small matter. It was not just a, uh, a bureaucratic affair. We're also going to take a look at uh, Bishop Fulton J. Sheen at the Second Vatican Council. Monsignor Hilary Franco was his full-time assistant. And he'll be sharing with us what he saw there and what kind of man Bishop Fulton Sheen was. So I'm Al Cresta. Stay with me. we got more coming up. from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Thanking you for joining me. You know, we all know that there's a lot of conflict uh, within the Catholic Church. Unfortunately, the factions and different groups uh, blaming other groups and this is going on. It's completely contrary to our task to be reconcilers, but it happens. And one of the things that we have as Catholics is we actually have a teaching authority that was instituted by Jesus, and it emanates from the apostles, and in particular, uh, the chief of the apostles, uh, St. Peter himself. And as you know, the Pope is not merely the Bishop of Rome, but he's the vicar of Christ, and he is regarded as sitting on the throne or the sitting on the chair of St. Peter, and that is a chair of teaching. It's uh, actually the way bishops taught in the early centuries of the church. Uh, they actually taught seated. I'd like to point out that in spite of the frequent factionalism that you see among American Catholics, we have, in fact, been... Uh, guided by saints. Um, you know, the, there's the, the cause of Pius XII, for instance, that's on hold right now. But we have St. John the Twenty-Third, right? St. Paul the Sixth. Uh, the cause for John Paul the First is open. I, I don't know where that's going to go. But we got, uh, again, St. John Paul the Second. Um, Benedict, I don't know if that cause has been open or if it will. Uh, and then we've got Pope Francis. So we think about that. Since the Second World War, we've had one, two, three um, uh, popes who are saints. And that that's, ought to be reassuring to those of us who sometimes worry about 
uh, Christ's governance of his church. George Weigel joins us in the uh, close of this hour, talking, uh, actually in just about 20 minutes. He'll be talking to us about John XXIII's original intention for Vatican II. And then we get the story of Monsignor Hilary Franco, who was full-time assistant to Bishop Fulton Sheen during the Second Vatican Council era. But first, let's get the headlines. Thanks, Al. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News. For Tuesday, October 24th, it's the Feast of St. Anthony Mary Claret. Today's news brought to you by the Ave Maria Family of Funds. You can learn more at AveMariaFunds.com. The U.S. is warning Iran against escalating the war between Israel and Hamas. Iran has supported Hamas and other groups that continue to carry out attacks on Israel. Iranian leaders have routinely threatened to wipe Israel off the map. While addressing the U.N. Security Council, Blinken said the U.S. will respond decisively if Iran or its proxies carry out attacks on U.S. personnel in the Middle East. Blinken also announcing that 33 Americans have been killed in Hamas's attack on Israel earlier this month. House Majority Whip Tom Emmer is dropping out of the Speaker's race just hours after being nominated. The Minnesota Republican failed to rally the necessary support from his own party as more than two dozen Republicans opposed his bid for the Speaker's gavel. Former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy says the Republican Party is in a bad place. We've been three weeks without a speaker. We let eight people work with every single Democrat to put us in here to go directly against what our conference rules say. Former President Trump also spoke out against Emmer's nomination on True Social. Detroit police have interviewed several people of interest and are close to making an arrest in the murder of synagogue leader Samantha Wall. Police Chief James White reiterating yesterday that they don't believe her death was a hate crime, but has not given several details, including not revealing the identity of the suspect. And more than 30 states are teaming up to sue Instagram and Facebook parent company Meta. They claim the tech giant is harming young mental health with addictive features like feeds that scroll endlessly and too many notifications. The federal lawsuit filed in California accuses Meta of contributing to a national mental health crisis. From your Ave Maria Radio.net news desk, I'm Steve Clark. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Joining me right now is Monsignor Hilary Franco. As a young priest, he served as an assistant to Bishop Fulton J. Sheen, was with him during the uh, years of the Second Vatican Council. And uh, he also went on to write a wonderful book recently, uh, just last year published, called Six Popes, A Son of the Church Remembers. Again, it's uh, wonderfully written and full of uh, memories that are instructive to us. And uh, Monsignor, it's good to have you with me. Thanks. It's so wonderful to be with you, Al, and... uh and this radio station, I, I do have to tell you that uh, that book actually, uh, at the beginning, was number one on the list of uh, Amazon list of new releases uh, for religious, uh, uh, you know, uh, topics. Yeah. So it was really incredible, you know, the success. And I'm receiving uh, continuously messages from all over the world. The last one was uh, from a journalist uh, in uh, in uh, Cape. Uh, can you imagine, you know, uh, in, in, the, in South Africa? Unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Well, this week we uh, celebrated the 60th anniversary of the that opening of the Second yeah. Vatican Council. And tell us a little bit about how you ended up there with Bishop Sheen. Uh, 
Well, uh, this is really so uh, wonderful that you asked me this. You know, I uh, last week, uh, last weekend, actually, I was in Pennsylvania, you know, giving a lecture on this. Uh, me, uh, that was a, uh, an, an incredible uh, privilege. Why? Because uh, I worked with uh, Fulton J. Sheen, Bishop Sheen, uh, since 1959 on the... Uh, Anti-Preparatory Commission papers. Okay. When we say anti, we mean A-N-T-E, yeah. namely before. Right. And then also on the uh, documents of the uh, Preparatory Commissions. And finally, uh, we were uh, together during the Council and after the Council. So much so that I uh, I have the privilege of having with me over 100 handwritten letters that he wrote to me. Uh, while he was alive until almost the end of his life. And you have in these uh, handwritten letters the history of the post-conciliar church in uh, the United States. You know, but that event uh, of the council was so essential, not only for the church, uh, Al. You know, sometimes we feel that uh, those documents were made and addressed only to us. No, no. The joys and the hopes, the griefs and the anxieties of the men of this age, especially those who are poor or in any way afflicted, these are the joys and hopes, the griefs and anxieties of the followers of Christ. These are the words of the God who manifests. We worked so much on uh, that schema. We call it Schema 13. Uh, And then we ended up uh, with that uh, beautiful uh, constitution, which is Gaudium et uh, Spets. As you do know, we have uh, uh, four constitutions, uh, three declarations, and nine decrees. So it was beginning with 1962 when we started. Uh, the first document that came out was uh, the Sacrosanctum Concilium uh, in 1963. And then we were on until uh, the 8th of December 1965, the day that we closed uh, the council. That, that was an, an incredible, being a, a preacher and an expert, you know, for the American bishops, not only for Bishop Sheen. I was uh, there with the American bishops preparing some of the talks because uh, let's not forget, there was no simultaneous translation at that time. Yeah. So everything everything was in Latin. And, uh, Were the American uh, bishops any good at Latin? No, that's why. <laughs> allow, me, allow me to say that. I, uh, I, uh, I think I mentioned this also in my book, The Six Popes. I mean, <laughs> it, it was very difficult for them. Uh, most of them, uh, they had learned a little bit of Latin. They, they knew how to... Uh, perhaps say mass in Latin, but it was an American Latin. <laughs> not, <laughs> not many people would understand what they were saying in Latin. And certainly, I, uh, being part of uh, uh, the uh, preparation uh, team uh, for uh, for the American bishops, that was an incredible thing. I was very young. Well, I had been ordained when I was 22 uh, with a special... Uh, uh, papal dispensation those days, according to canon law, you were supposed to be 24. Wow. But then I got, uh, I defended my first doctor dissertation when I was 23. So uh, there was a lot of uh, experience that went uh, into uh, those years of the council. I have to tell you that perhaps we should have given more importance to this uh, anniversary. I, I do not see 
uh, how many events uh, around the country, especially uh, uh, that we have, uh, uh, recalling those important, right. not only, as right. I said, uh, for the church, but for the world. Yes. I mean, but Al, I could go on and on, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, were the bishops aware of the, how momentous uh, the work was before them? Oh, right. That, that's a very intelligent question, Al. And I have to tell you, at the beginning, it was not so. They, uh, they figured, well, uh, this is a nice gathering. Uh, uh, remember the 11th of October? Uh, it, that was a, a shock for everybody when uh, uh, this uh, jolly, wonderful man by the name of uh, uh, Angelo Giuseppe Roncalli becomes Pope with the name of John the Twenty Third on the uh, 28th of uh, October, 1958. And then immediately after, we're talking about the 25th of uh, January, the following year, 59. He uh, kind of uh, shocked everybody, those poor few cardinals uh, from the children that were present at the, uh, the mass at uh, St. Paul outside the walls. Well, they, they said, well, wait a minute. Okay, he started by saying, well, I'm the Bishop of Rome. It's a long time. We don't have a synod in Rome. Uh, the Roman uh, diocese should have a synod. 1917 was the last time that we issued uh, the Code of Canon Law. We should update that. And up until then, uh, Al, uh, everything was all right. <laughs> <laughs> all of a sudden, it comes out. And then uh, the Holy Spirit has uh, inspired us. Uh, to propose a second Vatican <laughs> Well, I got to tell you, that was really a, a bomb, you know, and especially for the other bishops. Even during the, uh, uh, I, I feel this is my own personal feeling, naturally, that most of the American bishops did not really, uh, uh, I could count on my fingers, I don't know how many fingers I have, probably 10. You know, I, I could count the uh, American bishops that knew Latin to appreciate the work that had been done in the anti-preparatory commission, by the anti-preparatory commissions and uh, the preparatory commissions. So uh, it, it, it was really, they were not ready. They were not ready. And this was also the, the tragic uh, situation that happened afterwards, because... Uh, 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 if I would have time, I would tell you a few of the, uh, I remember Cardinal Cushing, you know, we have to prepare. Oh, yes, this is really beautiful. I think uh, the audience will appreciate this. You know, uh, bishops, uh, we had uh, 2,923 council fathers, so each one was allowed to speak only 10 minutes. Wow. But it had to be laughing. And naturally, you had the <laughs> Some of the, let's say, it comes to mind, you know, Cardinal Dutzner, who was a, uh, at that time, Bishop of Berlin, and he was tough. And he would say, well, uh, Tempus Tum, uh, one minute before the, the, the tenth minute, he would say, Tempus Tum, exhaust to master, your time is up. Valias concluder, you've got to conclude. <laughs> and, and, and so, some of the Italian and, and Spanish bishops, they would go on and on. He wouldn't care. <laughs> he would immediately announce the next speaker. Aldiamus Dominum, Excellentissimum Dominum, and so on and so forth. So, uh, I mean, these are the 10 minutes. I remember when I had to, we had to prepare 
uh, allow me to say sometimes, you know, we have to put in parentheses the, uh, how to pronounce uh, those words in Latin that they were supposed to be yeah. uh, uh, to uh, said uh, uh, at the, uh, by the American bishops, you know, because, you know, uh, and uh, I remember quite not pushing it. We didn't understand really much of what he said, you know, but and uh, McIntyre was worse, uh, <laughs> but but but, uh, but we uh, at the end he said Hillary, did I do all right? Yeah, I said, but can I go home? He said, and I, I mean those are some of the uh, the theoretical, the little things that we could say about the council, the real council. Yeah, you don't see these kind of things in books, right? You know, but it's certainly something that uh, would. Uh, be appreciated, you know, by even the lay people. They would understand how sure. human, human the situation. One of the questions that I was asked, uh, you know, why, uh, I mean, some of these uh, 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 bishops, did, did they realize, as you were saying before, what they were doing, what they were doing, actually, the, the great impact that they, that they would have uh, on the history of the world. Yeah. And yeah. not, not really, not really. And, and unfortunately, that was the uh, situation why, in, as I was saying, uh, these uh, 100 handwritten letters that he wrote to me almost every month while he was alive, Bishop Sheen, I was in Rome, because then after, uh, when he went up to Rochester, I was called uh, in Rome, where I spent 26 years. Mm. Now you understand why I know a little bit of Italian because, you know, otherwise you wouldn't be able to eat, you know, if you don't know Italian. Am I right? In those was, was, Bishop that, Sheen, was Bishop Sheen well welcomed there uh, in Rome? Was his reputation well known? He was, uh, he was incredibly welcome. Well, let, let, me, let me tell you something. He was invited so, in so many different places, and I would have to, to, to him, you know, to have a, some kind of a simultaneous translation, you know, and I remember in the royal... Uh, uh, palace of Naples. I remember, you know, we we had this big gathering uh, all over. He would be uh, called the wine we were in Rome. But I would like to uh, point out to you a beautiful uh, uh, thing that it still sticks in my mind so vividly was we, the fact that we only uh, we only have about sixty seconds, uh, Monsignor. I know when yeah. when he was called, his name was called. All the people left. Uh, the uh, the so-called uh, coffee bars to come and listen to Fulton J. Sheen. <laughs> something that never happened, had never happened wow. before with the other parties. Isn't that something? So he emptied all the coffee bars when yes, he spoke. the yeah. coffee bars. I don't know uh, why. Monsignor, uh, Monsignor, I'd love to talk with you when we have more time. Can I give you a call? I w it would be a pleasure and an yeah. All right. We'll talk soon. Monsignor Hillary okay. Franco... His book, Six Popes, A Son of the Church Remembers, and uh, we'll have him back when we can actually unpack uh, so many uh, of those stories. I'm Al Creston. The following is a medical moment. Hi, I'm Bobby Schindler, brother of Terry Schiavo. Can you imagine receiving a phone call from your child's roommate while they are away at college telling you that your son or daughter had an accident and has been admitted to the emergency room? but they don't know anything more. In a panic, you call around the hospitals asking about your child. However, instead of being helped, you are told they cannot share information with you because of HIPAA privacy. You are terrified, worried sick for your child. How do you prevent this situation from happening to you? 
a healthcare durable power of attorney. This legal document will appoint you as their healthcare agent, granting you the rights to all information in an emergency and to make medical decisions on their behalf. As soon as you're able to, you need your child to sign these documents in order to prevent the nightmarish situation we've just discussed. They must be signed, stored, and easy to access so that you can have them at your fingertips the moment disaster strikes. This medical moment brought to you by MyLifeAngels.com. Is social media leading to more young women getting cosmetic surgery? I'm Chuck Gatica, and this is Journey Strong. Our daughter and family just welcomed a new baby girl into the world. The boys in our family are now outnumbered for sure. I've witnessed how some of our girls often struggle with self-image and body issues. These issues are now being enhanced by social media. First Peter teaches us that it is not outward beauty that is important, but it should be that of our inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Studies indicate that young women are going under the knife for more cosmetic procedures in direct response to social media. Encourage the women in your life to practice self-compassion. Build them up. Help them find ways to be content in their own skin. True self-esteem is having confidence that I am who God says I am. For more on this, head over to our Journey Strong tab at the homepage of AveMariaRadio.net. Support for this Ave Maria radio program comes in part by the non-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate, or estate planning? StAnthonyServices.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at StAnthonyServices.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US-1. That's realestateforlife.org. He is only one of four popes honored as the great. Matthew Bunsen and the Doctors of the Church. St. Leo I was pope at a time when Roman civilization was being overrun by barbarian armies. He stood as a light in the darkness and even saved the city of Rome from destruction by Attila and the Huns. Leo died in 461. For more about the Doctors of the Church, visit doctorsofthechurch.com. This program is brought to you in part by Charity Mobile, a proud partner of Ave Maria Radio for over 15 years. Charity Mobile is the pro-life cell phone company and has sent nearly $2 million to thousands of pro-life charities. 4G LTE coverage is available nationwide, and 5% of your monthly plan price goes to your favorite pro-life charity. A video introduction is available at CharityMobile.com. Charity Mobile, everyday living, effortless giving. CharityMobile.com. And good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. 
The Second Vatican Council was the most significant event in the history of the Church during the 20th century, and many would say during the previous four centuries. And this week, we witnessed the anniversary of its opening in 1962. It was October, the month that the Beatles released their first single in the United Kingdom, Love Me Do. It was also the month of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Now, there's been no denying that there has been debate, argument, quarrels over the meaning of the Second Vatican Council. Was it a new paradigm of doing church, focused on restructuring the church for more democratic participation, maybe even the democratizing of doctrine, as we may be seeing in this German synodal way? Or was it the church's attempt to address the civilizational crisis uh, and to present Jesus Christ as the key to understanding humanity in the world. My guest, George Weigel, is the author of To Sanctify the World, The Vital Legacy of Vatican II. George serves as a distinguished senior fellow of Washington's Ethics and Public Policy Center, and we know him, of course, as the author of the outstanding biography of John Paul II. George, good to have you back here. Thanks. Thank you, Al. Happy uh, 60th anniversary. And to you. Uh, it's common to say that the problems occurring since the Second Vatican Council are the result of the Council, and if we could just get back to the Church of the 1950s, we'd be all back on track. Response? No, that's nonsense, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I knew that was an easy one. <laughs> I, I, this fantasy of the rock-solid um, Church of the 1950s I, I think is um, uh, is is blown up uh, when you consider that it was the uh, when you look at the, the the exodus from rectories and convents in the late 1960s. Yeah, those were the people most recently formed. That's right. In that seemingly well-running machine of 1950s Catholicism. Yeah. Uh, and a B, you cannot read the Catholic reality simply through the prism of the American Church. Catholicism is a global phenomenon. Some of the smartest people in the Church, including Hans Urs von Balthasar and Joseph Ratzinger, were writing in the 1950s that the Church had to uh, leave its bunker mentality rekindle its Christocentric faith, and get about the business of converting a world that had become simply irreligious, yeah. as John Henry Newman had warned it, it, it was right. becoming in the late 19th century. Yeah. So, uh, in the book, I try to explain why the Council was necessary, what the Council actually taught, and how it was authoritatively interpreted by two men of the Council, John Paul II and Benedict XVI. Yeah. When people talk about the Second Vatican Council, uh, why it was called, the first word that comes to mind is aggiornamento, or usually translated, update. Bring, bring the Church in step with the modern age. Why is this the wrong place to begin in understanding the Council? It, it was, it's the wrong place to begin because it ignores the most significant movement uh, in Catholic intellectual life uh, leading up to the Second Vatican Council, which was called the Resource Small Movement. Uh, 
a movement to reground the Church's proposal to the world, and indeed the Church's self-understanding, in the Bible, in the theology of the Fathers of the Church, and to move the Church beyond a merely logical or syllogistic presentation of, of the faith. Um, so the Council was indeed about learning how to make the enduring truths of Catholic faith hearable, if you will, understandable in, in uh, modernity. But that was to be done through a deepening appropriation of the Church's ancient tradition, which begins with the Bible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so often uh, what people point out is that uh, what seemed to happen uh, is that, at least in America, that uh, the message of the Council was to uh, accommodate the world rather than work for its transformation. This is another mistake uh, in interpreting the Council that actually began during the Council. Uh, and I discuss in the book how the rather quick media uh, spin, as we would say now on Vatican II, is a great battle between liberals and conservatives. Right. Right. Translate good guys and bad guys, or Cowboys <laughs> and Indians, or whatever you like. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, just fundamentally misses the nature of the Church, as, as uh, my old and dear friend Cardinal Francis George said at his first press conference when he was appointed Archbishop of Chicago and was asked, of course, are you a liberal or a conservative? Yeah. And uh, Francis George said the Catholic Church is not about left and right, it's about true and false. And what the Second Vatican Council was intended to do was give true a more compelling expression. And it's hard to do that if you're parsing everything. It's hard to understand how the Council did that if you're parsing everything in these political terms. Mm -hmm. um, but there's also a fundamental misunderstanding of what ecumenical councils are embedded in this notion that you mentioned at the beginning of paradigm shifts or whatnot. Uh, the Catholic Church does not do paradigm shifts. <laughs> the Catholic Church does development of doctrine. Uh -huh. Uh, brilliantly analyzed uh, by the aforementioned John Henry Newman. But we don't do paradigm shifts because the paradigm was given us by the Son of God. Yeah. And we have no authority <laughs> to uh, alter his paradigm. Yeah. Yeah. What we do have the responsibility to do is to develop our self-understanding and continuity with the great tradition of the Church, so that we can meet the challenge of the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations, in new cultural and social circumstances. And that's what the intention of John XXIII for Vatican II was. That's what I was just going to ask you. There are three, you mentioned three uh, moments where we actually can discern his intent for the uh, Second Vatican Council, including, and probably the most important one, was uh, Gaudet Mater Ecclesia, uh, Mother Church Rejoices, his opening address to the Council on October 11, 1962. Can you summarize what he said? 
Gaudet Mater Ecclesia, I think, is the prism through which one should read uh, the documents of the Council in their proper order. Uh, there, the Pope said the first task of the Council is to pass on to this historical moment what he called the sacred deposit of our faith. Uh, the fullness of Catholic truth, we might say, in a slightly different vocabulary. Mm -hmm. Uh, We need to do that in a way that this cultural and social moment can hear, so we're going to have to learn how to do that in in a fresh and compelling way. But at the center of that, the Pope said, must be Christ himself. Uh, Because the central truth of Catholic faith is that the Son of God entered human history in order to reveal to us both the face of the merciful Father and the full truth about our humanity and its noble destiny. That's what we need to put up front. Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and present in his mystical body, the Church. Now, in a radio address precisely a month before that, on September 11, 1962, the Pope gave his own one-sentence description of what the purpose of the Council is. He said the purpose of the Council is evangelization. So, what I take from this is that the Second Vatican Council was far more about Christifying the world Mm -hmm. than about changing the Church. Yeah, Yeah. so friendship with with Christ is the remedy for modernity's confusions and conflicts. Uh, Not reinventing the Church, but friendship with Christ. Because there we find the answer to the question that had been making such a mess of the modern world for so long. What is the human person? Where do we come from? What is our destiny? Are we just congealed stardust? Or is there something more to us than that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, and uh, you know we have to remember too the Second Vatican Council comes you know shortly after the Second World War, and the the big the large questions that were raised by the Holocaust and the the, the cheapening of human life. So this question, what is the human person, uh, wasn't a mere abstraction uh, for the Council Fathers. No, it wasn't, and, and in fact, the uh, the parade of horribles, if you will, goes back to the First World War, yeah. where, yeah. you know, it, it, it seems more and more in the retrospect of, of over 100 years now that, you know, European civilization really tried to commit suicide for, for 40 years. And out of that came a deeply dumbed-down view of humanity, mm-hmm. uh, which took various weird forms, whether that's you know, the Nazi view that uh, you are what your racial composition is, or the communist view that we're all just, just um, uh, the exhaust fumes of the means of production, yeah. or the utilitarian view that we're all just little twitching bundles of desires. Yeah. Uh, the Church had to lift up a nobler humanism, and that is a Christocentric humanism. Uh, while you've mentioned communism, let me just ask a quick question. Uh, and that is, why is no, very little, I think there's one sentence or so that refers directly to communism in the Council documents. Uh, do you know what was the reason for that? 
The, it's often said that the Second Vatican Council did not condemn communism, which it should have. I point out in the book, in To Sanctify the World, that if you read uh, the Pastoral Constitution on the Church in the Modern World closely, it has a risk um, demolition, if you will, mm-hmm. of state-sponsored atheism. Yeah. Uh, that is unmistakably common. Yes, that's right. So it's just not, it's just not true. Okay. George, I hear the music coming up. Hold it there. We'll come back, continue the conversation. My guest, George Weigel, is author of this outstanding uh, new reflection on the Second Vatican Council. It's called To Sanctify the World, The Vital Legacy of Vatican II. We'll be right back. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health-sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. It's not over. Unplanned pregnancies still happen. I'm Marian Kloharski, Director of Pro-Life Across America. In my 30-plus years, I've never seen such a concerted attempt to silence our efforts and at a time when it's most needed. There's a powerful effort to prevent and block our pro-life messages. Our billboards, social media, and digital ads are all impacted. Our messages feature a hotline number connecting callers with more than 3,000 pregnancy support centers across America, offering alternatives to abortion, free ultrasound, and pregnancy assistance. Babies' lives are being saved. The need still exists. It really does. And Pro-Life Across America needs your help. Please find us at ProLifeAcrossAmerica.org. Did you know I could suck my thumb before I was born? Yep, we all started small. Would you get on a plane that doesn't have a pilot? Investing in passive index mutual funds may present the same issue. The Ave Maria mutual funds are actively managed by seasoned investment professionals to help you meet your investment goals in a morally responsible way. Ave Maria funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors could invest in the no-load Ave Maria mutual funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria mutual funds at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. Father Benedict Groeschel. I want to welcome you, if you're not familiar, with the wonderful world of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. What will America become if it makes it impossible for the Holy Spirit to work here because of untruth and self-indulgence and paganism? This is not just a nice discussion of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, because I'm going to discuss What happens when people make it impossible to be prudent, just, or honest, or brave, or courageous, or reverent? When people make that impossible, what a terrible thing they do not only to themselves, but to our society. EWTN. Live Truth. Live Catholic. What is meditative prayer? 
The Catholic Catechism defines meditative prayer as, above all, a quest. The mind seeks to understand the why and how of the Christian life in order to adhere and respond to what the Lord is asking. Since the required attentiveness is difficult to sustain, we are aided by books such as sacred scripture, especially the Gospels, holy icons, liturgical texts of the day or season, and writings of the spiritual fathers. If we meditate on what we read, we make it our own. If we are humble and faithful in meditation, we discover in meditation the movements that stir the heart, enabling us to discern those movements. We are asking, Lord, what do you want me to do? There are as many methods of meditation as there are spiritual masters. The Catechism urges us to develop the desire to meditate regularly. All meditation should advance us to the knowledge of the love of the Lord Jesus. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. afternoon to you. My guest is George Weigel. He is author, most recently, of To Sanctify the World, The Vital Legacy of Vatican II. And this week, as we've been focusing on the Second Vatican Council uh, in honor of its 60th, the 60th anniversary of its opening, uh, we're trying to get a, a good idea of what the purpose of the Council was, and also uh, what happened that ended up breeding so much uh, controversy. George, you, you mentioned uh, something I, I actually had not really seen before. You mentioned Jacques Maritain, the renowned Catholic philosopher, close friend of Pope Paul VI. He didn't have a formal role at the Council, but his work on Christian humanism, democracy, human rights, laity, Christian-Jewish relations, all left their mark on the Council's texts. And he even was recognized in the closing ceremonies uh, because Paul VI saw him as embodying the intellectual life, his, the intellectual life in service of the Church and of Christ. As early as 1966, though, he has published this book, The Peasant of Garon, which is really his lament for what he fears is the wrong direction that interpreters of the Council... Uh, or even those who participated in the council, are now taking the church. That's early to to know if there are problems. Al, as you remember from when we discussed my book, The Irony of Modern Catholic History, mm-hmm. uh, these fights over what whether Vatican II was meant to reinvent Catholicism or deepen the church's Christocentric self-understanding and continuity with tradition began at the Council itself. There was a division between the uh, reformist theologians, the theological advisors at the Council, uh, between the camp that eventually would include uh, Joseph Ratzinger, uh, and, and another camp which really believed in the reinvention of the Church, uh, if not from the ground up, then at least from uh, in a very significant way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Maritain sensed how that was being uh, played out in, in France uh, in the years immediately after the Council, and what he was particularly concerned about was the lack of any, the loss of of any sense of transcendence, wow. that that 
the church was running the risk of becoming simply a non-governmental organization in the business of good works. Now, doing good works is a good thing, <laughs> yes. but you cannot you cannot reduce the reality of the church, the center of which is Christ Himself, to a good works agency. And if you do that, you have not developed the tradition; you've abandoned the tradition. Mm-hmm. And uh, this, I, I think, there were there were many factors in this involved in this. Uh, one was certainly the state of intellectual life in, in Europe and the United States, Europe and North America in the late 1960s. Um, not the most calm cultural moment for <laughs> receiving the teaching of the Council. Uh, I think that the Church um, uh, really did not know how to deal in a compelling way with the sexual revolution, mm-hmm. and it really took us until uh, John Paul II's theology of the body to right. come up with uh, a uh, a response to the sexual revolution that that is that is truly compelling. Yeah. Now, I mean, Paul VI got the key issues right in Humanae Vitae in 1968, but again, the presentation was not such that. Um, it could be heard as it should have been heard right, right. by modernity, although his warnings have been you know, uh, forcefully borne out in the, in the 50 years uh, since then. So, um, uh, Maritain's lament, as I put it in the book, uh, really goes back to that division within the Council itself. Within the Council itself, okay. Be- between, uh, not between so-called progressives and so-called traditionalists, but the split within the reformist camp itself. And, you know, I've dubbed this in, in two books now, The War of the Conciliar Succession. Yeah. <laughs> you know, how, who, who gets to de- determine what the meaning of the council is? Right. Now, the whole third part of, of To Sanctify the World is an extended argument that John Paul II and Benedict XVI did offer the keys to the council that the Council itself did not provide mm-hmm. in its own documents. The, the Council, uh, you mentioned the Council without keys. Is right. the Second Vatican Council uh, the only Council, Ecumenical Council in our history, that didn't uh, embody within itself the uh, key to its own understanding? Yeah, I think so. I mean, this uh, this is an idea I've been working with for some time, and I I think it does help illuminate things. Look, if you want to know what the nice, first council of Nicaea meant, the first ecumenical council, 325 mm-hmm. AD, you read that creed we recite every Sunday. Right. That's the key to the council of Nicaea. Right. If you want to know what Ephesus and Chalcedon were about in the 5th century, you read their dogmatic definitions of the two natures and one person of Christ, mm-hmm. or of Our, Our Lady as uh, Mother of God, God-bearers, mm-hmm. If you want to know what other councils are about, you read the canons they wrote into the Law of the Church, you read their condemnations of this, that, or the other. Heresy, uh, Council of Trent did all of that and added a catechism to the mix, the, right. catechism, the Roman catechism. Vatican II did none of that. No definitions, no condemnations, no canons, no um, uh, catechism, 
no creed. So what are the keys? Where, where are the keys to unpacking this? And I think that's what those two great pontificates did over 35 continuous years yeah. of providing the keys to Vatican II. And the crucial moment in that was the Synod of 1985, 20th anniversary of the Council, where the Synod Fathers say, they don't use the term, I'll use the term, the master key is the idea that the Church is a communion of disciples in mission. And if you read the documents of the Council, if you unlock the documents of the Council through that master key, then things fall into place. Yeah. Uh, Dei Verbum uh, is so critical, uh, dogmatic constitution, it it reassures us that God, in fact, has spoken. Um, And yet, there are those who read Dei Verbum as though it's somehow a a way of liberating oneself uh, from the tradition, uh, a historical tradition of the Church, and that uh, uh, one can now use historical critical tools to uh, deconstruct uh, the, the, the Gospel, uh, even engage in the work of demythologization. Uh, Dei Verbum makes the point that there is a transcendent word from outside the flux of human experience. And that seems to be denied by many. Well, if they're denying it, they're simply not reading the document, because the document is an extremely robust affirmation of the reality of a divine word spoken into history, first in the people of Israel, later in the person of the Son of God, uh, definitively in the, the person of the Son of God. And um, that is exactly what is at issue in Germany right now, is the reality and binding authority over time of divine revelation. Yeah, yeah. Or to put it more simply, does, do we know more than God does? Right, right. I mean, this is, this is the fundamental issue in this uh, German synodal way is is the question of the binding authority of, of divine revelation. So, so uh, if we don't we have a only... divine word, if we don't have a divine word, then what we do is we basically uh, take a vote and democratize uh, doctrine. I mean, that's what it sounds like to me. It's even worse than that, Al, because if you deny the reality of divine revelation, you're saying this world is a world without windows or doors or right. skylights. right. That's claustrophobic. Yeah, yeah. And on the other hand, if you affirm the reality of divine revelation through, uh, through history, in history, you're making a very important statement about us, namely that we are creatures so configured that we can hear that divine word in history and be ennobled by it. Yeah. That's a lot different than saying, you know, we're all accidents of cosmic biochemical processes. Um, uh, and that dumbing down of the human condition is, as we discussed a moment ago, at the root of an awful lot of the enormous sorrow of late modernity. Yeah, yeah. 
So the work, John Paul II, Benedict XVI then, um, were self-consciously about the work of properly interpreting and implementing the council. That's fair to say, right? First thing John Paul II said on his first day as Pope, when he uh, met with the College of Cardinals that had just elected him as Pope, is that the entire focus of this pontificate is going to be helping the Church properly understand and implement the Second Vatican Council. The first thing uh, Pope Benedict XVI does uh, in his first uh, Christmas remarks to the Roman Curia in December 2005 is he talks about the rupture interpretation of Vatican II, Vatican II reinvented the Church all over again, Mm -hmm. or the proper interpretation of Vatican II as reform in continuity with tradition. So he sets that agenda of key providing, providing keys, out right at the beginning of his pontificate, as John Paul II did, which is why I think those two pontificates will eventually be read as one continuous 35-year arc of providing the keys to the Council without keys. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, at the end of his pontificate, John Paul II gave us uh, an encyclical, uh, The Church from the Eucharist, and in that encyclical he has to make the case, which one would have hoped had already been made, that the Eucharist is not merely a fraternal banquet. Uh, do you know, was he... Was he was he unhappy? Uh, did he feel he had succeeded? I I think he understood that there were parts of the church, I would say the dying parts of the church, that had so dumbed down their understanding of what we do when we celebrate the Holy Eucharist that they had in fact reduced it to what Ratzinger had called previously, uh, you know, uh, uh, the community celebration of itself. And that's obviously not the truth of Catholic faith regarding the Eucharist, which is Christ himself among us. Absolutely. George, we're out of time, unfortunately, but thank you so much. Uh, This is a great piece of work, and uh, I hope it gets the wide readership it deserves and uh, that it gets absorbed. Thank you. Thank you, Al. George Weigel, to sanctify the world, the vital legacy of Vatican II. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Finding good health care, encouragement for healthier living, or solid spiritual direction can be frustrating. That's why the Catholic healthcare alternative, CMF Curo, is offering a health-sharing option. Curo's Christ-centered wellness services include Catholic wellness coaching, spiritual direction, and a Catholic community supporting your health and wellness needs. Visit cmfcuro.com to learn more. That's cmfcuro.com, where you can experience Christ's healing love in your health and wellness. With so much going on in the world, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. What do you need to know today? Stay tuned to Cresta in the Afternoon and Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio as we bring you the day's top stories and conversations from an authentic Catholic perspective. Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio. People have this false notion that after the Supreme Court came out with, of course, Roe v. Wade, 
and gave us abortion on demand through nine months of pregnancy. And all of a sudden, all of these regulations were put into place when all of these independent abortion facilities popped up all over the country when Planned Parenthood started opening its doors and doing abortions legally after 1973, that it was always so safe and wonderful. And they believe this because they don't see these stories about the botched abortions, the women who have lost their lives, the women who have been violated because their information has been tossed out in the street with the garbage and the medical waste. Not to mention the fact that the regulations that are on the books are not even enforced and rarely are these facilities inspected. And yet people think that they're so safe. Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. Never miss an episode of Cresta in the Afternoon. Subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also listen on demand at AveMariaRadio.net and on the Ave Maria Radio app. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta thanking you for being with me this last hour. And uh, my thanks again to all of our local Catholic stations, especially uh, to Trinity Catholic Radio in Carroll, Iowa, celebrating their 18th year now with EWTN. And my congratulations to Kelly Foley and the great team there at KYMJ 103.1 FM in Carroll, Iowa. Congratulations from all of us here at EWTN. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow for another edition of Crest in the Afternoon. And let me repeat what I never tire of saying, and that if you'd like to go deeper into the topics that we discuss on this program, you can do so by going to AveMariaRadio.net. There we have the Cresta Guest Archives, which is a record of the broadcast that we've uh, produced. You can you know, go back in time into our archives. You can also see um, contact information for our guests. You can also uh, get supplementary material that we use during the preparation of the interview. So take a look at it, AveMariaRadio.net. In any books we mention, AveMariaRadio.net as well. Press in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A, radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506 or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at AveMariaRadio.net.